Today we are finishing a series called Reclaiming Repentance. This is the last one. Now, have we, have we covered every instance in the New Testament where repentance is used? No. But what we are going to do is finish up with enough of the controversial ones today to where if you were to go through and look at the ones that we might not have covered, you will have enough information to sit down and do your own study. And that's kind of been the goal of what we've been trying to get at. Now you might say, why is this such a big deal? Some of you might think we spent 10 Sundays just kind of spinning our wheels on a word, but I promise you, words are important to the Lord. He doesn't waste words. And when He speaks, He needs to be taken for exactly what that word may mean in any given context. It's important for us to do the due diligence as His children to know more and more about Him and how He works with people. Otherwise, we stray often in some incredible error. So let me give you an example about why this is important. Okay? This first quote is Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem, as I've mentioned before, uh, is someone who wrote a systematic theology. It is the most used textbook in Bible colleges and seminaries today in order to do theology or to teach students theology. Here's what he says. But what we do not often realize is the fact that there are many other passages where only repentance is named. Okay? That's a biblical fact. We would agree with that. For it is simply assumed Pause. Did everybody catch the language here? Oh, go back. Somebody took my pen off here. I know. What's going on with people? Boom. It is simply assumed. Now watch this. It is simply assumed that true repentance will also involve faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins. The New Testament authors understood so well that, now watch this because this phrase is never used in Scripture. Genuine repentance and genuine genuine faith. Look for it. You won't find it. There's repentance and there's faith. Okay? But whether or not it's genuine. Because if there's a problem, you've got wiggle room to go. Well, your faith must not have been genuine. And your repentance must not have been genuine. Now watch what they're saying here. The New Testament authors understood so well that genuine repentance and genuine faith had to go together that they often simply mentioned repentance alone with the understanding that faith would also be included. That is the assumption. Notice he's speaking for the New Testament authors, of which I'm pretty sure he didn't know any of them personally. Okay, you've got to laugh. Come on. Okay? Here's a reason why he that he gives. Because turning from sins stops. Everybody notice he just gave you his definition of repentance. Turning from sins in a genuine way is impossible apart from a genuine turning to God. He believes that this is what repentance is, and he believes that turning to God is what faith is. Now here's what's amazing. This right here checks out. You will see sometimes in the scriptures where it deals with a turning to God, and the reason why they've turned to God is because they've believed. That's biblical. However, you do not ever see where repentance deals with the idea of turning from sin. That's not what the word means. Now, somebody who I'm a pretty big fan of is this guy right here, Curtis Hudson. Some of you might know him. If you're Sword of the Lord fans, anybody a Sword of the Lord fan? Dr. John R. Rice, anybody? Y'all need to read more. Okay, just Scott. Get, get some Sword of the Lord stuff and let it light your fire. Curtis Hudson is the kind of guy that if your wood's wet, he'll light it, okay? The problem is not preaching repentance. 
Is repentance in the Bible? Yeah, should we teach that and know about it? <laughs> like, I hope so. You spent 10 weeks on it. Good grief. Yes. But notice, it is giving a wrong definition of the word. That's the problem. Down through the centuries, repent has come to mean a far different thing than when it was spoken by John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, and Jesus Christ himself. If you look up repent or repentance in a modern dictionary, you will find such definitions as to feel sorry or self-reproachful, to be conscience-stricken, or to turn from sin. Using these definitions, some have preached reformation instead of repentance. Now pause for a second. Let's go back for a second. Is the idea of somebody needing to turn from sins in order to be saved, is that reformation? You realize that if somebody that's lost is dead and trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us, you've just asked them to perform a work before Jesus will accept them. If you don't, have you ever heard this before? If you don't turn from your sins, you can't be saved. How many sins? All of them? Does anybody in here know all their sins? That's a pretty long list, isn't it? It's a pretty long list that gets all smudgy at the bottom because we can't remember all the bad things we do. You better turn away from them or Jesus won't accept you. That's something that's called front-loading the gospel. You've put requirements up front, the criteria that someone must meet in order to be accepted by God. Understand this, and I know we've said it a million times, but repetition is a good teacher. The work necessary before God was done on the cross. That's the work he looks for. That's the only payment that he receives, and it is a payment in full. So to say that someone must do something or accomplish it, well, shouldn't we get people out of sin? Shouldn't they forsake sin? Yes. Absolutely. None of us are going to sit here and say evil's a good thing. But to tell them that's what they have to do in order to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we have corrupted the work of Christ. You cannot do that. It stops being about grace. And it starts being about works. And I don't know about you, but I don't think Jesus needs my help. He does not need my help to save people. So notice, the problem here is that some preached reformation instead of repentance. Should we change our mind when we're off base about God and how He works? Absolutely. I'm actually hoping that this series will cause some of us to repent. I've been thinking wrongly about God. I've been thinking wrongly about that word. Maybe I haven't been thinking about the sole nature of the value and weight of the cross of Christ. And I've gotten away from that. No, 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 no. He can take it. And he did take it. And he did deal with it. So put all your trust on that situation. But if we're telling someone you must reform your life in order for Jesus to accept you, we're preaching works righteousness. And works righteousness saves no one. Notice, if you look up the Greek word translated repent in the King James Bible, as used by Jesus, Paul, John, and others in the New Testament, you will find that the word metanoeo means to think differently or afterwards, that is, to change the mind. So notice we got two opposing viewpoints, diametrically opposed. The issue at stake is the purity of the gospel, and the question is, which one's right? Now, here's what I love. Doesn't Emily do a good job? Look at this. Isn't it beautiful? All of you have one of these bookmarks. we got a lot of them. Plan on using them and getting them in your hands and getting familiar with this method so that we can begin to understand a little bit better about what it is to study a text. But you've got all the pretty little questions on the back. Man, she did such a good job. Now, understand this. The words need to be over on the right-hand side. If you turn it on the left, the world looks upside down and you're all off, okay? 
I did that earlier. It was freaking me out. I thought we printed these wrongs, and then I turned it over, and that's where I'm at in life, okay? So anyway, these little study questions will help you in dealing with the Bible. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to look again at particular passages that have caused issues where the word repentance is used. But then we're going to back up a little bit, consider the trees, the surrounding context, but also deal with the forest. Branch out just a little bit bigger so that we get more clarity on a situation. And hopefully this will help us in understanding. So we've covered all of these areas dealing with the Jewish Gentile and Samaritan, but we've still got this one here and this one here. The reason why I did these and didn't go in chronological order is because these two have caused some great problems with people, as we're going to see. So the idea of using repent and repentance in the Gentile section of the book of Acts. Here we go. Let's take our Bibles and let's turn open to Acts chapter 11. Very good place to start. Acts 11 is also a good check for us to understand when the church started. There's a lot of debate about the church didn't start until the ministry of Paul became effective or before or until he came to faith in Christ. That is not true. That's something known as hyper dispensationalism or ultra dispensationalism. It is not something that the scriptures espouse whatsoever. Peter tells us very clearly here in Acts 11 what exactly is going on. So what we're going to look at, just for clarity's sake, is going to be Acts 11, verses 1 through 3. Let's get a little bit of what's going on, who's talking, all this good stuff, and then we'll jump into the nitty-gritty of it. Notice it says, verse 11, Now the apostles and the brethren, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Very important things to mark here. Now notice this. You've got your people. Apostles. Saved people, yes. Yeah, not only that, but they're also leaders. These are the people who walked with Christ. Big deal, yes. Very big deal. Okay, so give them a check mark. And the brethren. Who's that? Believers. Okay? We like them too. Notice they were throughout Judea. That's the region in the south where Jerusalem is located at. And they heard the Gentiles. Uh-oh. Okay? Because sometimes we understand this as pagans. We understand this as the nations. We also understand this as mainly lost, okay? This was a completely different deal, but the idea is is that the Gentiles, those who weren't Jews, okay, had received the Word of God. Notice that this is the catalyst for how people get saved. They have to hear the Word of God, okay? Now, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is located in Judea where these people have heard it. Apostles and brethren have heard about them receiving the Word of the Lord. When he came to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, now real quick, you say that's really strange. No, it's just dealing with the idea of Luke identifying Jewish Christians. Okay, that's who they are. They took issue with him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men. Who's that? The Gentiles. Uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. You didn't just talk with them. You dined with them, Peter. What is wrong with you? Does that sound like a hefty charge? Peter goes back and he recounts this instance, the instance of Cornelius, and we're going to look at that here in just a second. But let's see what's going on in this current scene that's going to flash back on what has taken place. Move your eyes down to verse 15. Notice he says here, and as I began to speak, notice that faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Now watch this, everybody. Pay close attention. Just as. He did upon us, and then he gives you a time marker. 
at the beginning. Pause. When did the Holy Spirit fall upon the Jews starting the church? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Did the Bible just tell us when the church started? What is the catalyst for making it start? The coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming, the work, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Very important marker so that we don't fall into an error such as hyper-dispensationalism. Notice it says here, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, Gentiles, this is what Peter witnessed, just as he did upon us, Jews, Acts 2, at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water. Everybody remember that? The baptism of repentance? Everybody remember what he said? Make straight the paths for the one who is to come. We're going to deal with that a little bit more in a minute. But you will be baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the difference maker. Therefore, I'm going to be silent. What's that there for? Since that's the situation and we draw a heavy underline and we kick it back saying that previous idea has a lot of bearing on the explanation that we're going to see. If God gave them the same gift, what's the gift? Holy Spirit. As He gave to us, notice, them, Gentiles. Us, Jews, Acts 2. After, after what? After behaving. That what it says, are we preaching Reformation? No, after what? Believing. That means faith alone. In the Lord, He is the object of our salvation. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to say that I could stand in God's way? Now stop. We've given Peter a hard time over the years. Give that boy a round of applause. Seriously, right? Who was I to stand in God's way? If he's doing this, who am I to say anything? I guarantee you before the cross, he wouldn't have acted like that. Wait, God, they're Gentiles. They eat pork. Well, we shouldn't save them then. Good grief. Peter, I tell you, barbecue is a big equalizer for situations like this moving on when they heard this okay now this is the apostles and the brethren those who were considered of the circumcised church the jews when they heard this they quieted down now i love that because that's not how a lot of churches respond to controversy they don't ever say let's just shut our mouths for a second and think boy that's a good prescription notice and they did what they glorified god that's called worship It's giving all the credit and honor to God. They glorify God saying, well then, God has granted. What this word means is given opportunity. How do I spell that? Opportunity. There we go. Opportunity to the Gentiles also, the repentance that leads to life. Does everybody see that leads to life? This is an incredibly difficult area of Scripture to discern because of the preposition in play. I'm going to explain a little bit more about this, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you, from here forward, this sermon is a little jumbled. You're like, we're used to that. That's fine. Okay? But here's the reason why. Depending on the manuscripts that your translation was derived from, whether you have King James, New King James, English Standard Version, New American Standard, whatever it is, you are going to have a situation where some of the prepositions very. If that is the case, we have to do the best work that we can and the best research that we can and make sure that we're not violating any stalwart doctrines in coming to a conclusion. 
Because someone could easily look at this, and if you notice, that leads is in italics. It's in italics in your scriptures if you have it. That means that this was not in the original, but they had to insert this as a translator situation in order to bring greater clarity to that. So it would actually read, as some of your translations might say, repentance that, or sorry, the repentance to life. And here's the reason why. The preposition that's being used here is ace. Okay? This makes like the eight sound, E-I together, and then the S on the end, ace. And it's got a myriad of meanings of which we're going to deal with here in just a second. Just stick with me on it because we've seen it before. Now, here's the question. Does Scripture speak to this situation at all anywhere else? It does because Peter is recounting an event that took place of which they got wind of, of which they gave him a hard time when he showed up with his, with his uh, posse. Everybody got that? I don't know, homies, whatever. They showed up together there in order to explain what God was doing. So now here's what we do. We flip back to that event. Turn back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 first. And the reason is, is because we need to know who we're dealing with, and we need to get a flavor of what type of person this is. Now, there was a man in Caesarea. Caesarea is kind of down in the southern region, kind of in the Samaria area there. That's not necessarily important geography for us, but he is a Gentile. That's what we need to know. A man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, okay? So notice he's got a Roman connection. That's important. That shows us he's a Gentile. Of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man. Pause. The first thing that Luke decides to record about this man is that he's devout. Do you know some people who are lost but principled? You know that? You just say he's a good person. He's just going to hell. That's bad. Therefore, we need to get in there and start doing some soul winning. But notice, he's a devout man. But look about him. One who feared God with all his household. He didn't just have a reverence for Yahweh, the creator of all things. He was leading his home in this direction and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. You will have people that will say, well, he ain't saved, why is he praying? God's not listening to him, he's a pagan. You think that's true? No. You think there are certain things that God just doesn't hear? Well, you're lost, I can't hear you. That happened? No. So let's get beyond some of the, I don't know, goofy things we do to Scripture. Let me ask you this. Does it look like that maybe at some point in Cornelius' life, he may have changed his mind about God? Notice it looks like an evidence of the repentance that's taken place. It's really hard-pressed to find lost people who fear God with all their household, give money to Jewish people, and pray to God continually. In fact, I think it's because he was responding to what had been revealed to him about God that he was called by an angel of the Lord to send for Peter to come and tell him the message of salvation. Why did that need to happen? Because he's not saved. He's got to hear the word of God in order to come to faith in Christ. But has repentance taken place? Obviously, it looks like it has. Now, some of us are familiar with this. You can read about it later, but we just need to hit the strong points because of the time that we have here. Look down at verse 42 of this entire situation. You might have to flip over a little bit. Peter is giving the gospel. He's speaking about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to Cornelius and his house. 
they're prepared and they're ready to receive it. How do we know that? Because his whole household has been directed towards God. He is selfless in his finances and he's praying to the Lord all the time. Notice what it says here in verse 42. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Who's Peter talking about? Christ, Jesus. See, you come to Sunday school, you answer more quickly like that. Yes? Some of you are like, who is he talking about? Jay knew. Jay, are you in Sunday school? Good. Thank you. See, it works. Even with Jay. I mean, come on. So notice verse 43. Of him, all the prophets bear witness. You know what all the prophets mean? Old Testament. That through his name, everyone who, does it say repent? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. You must believe in order for forgiveness of sins to take place. Does everybody see that? Seems pretty plain. Now watch this. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening. Right? Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So notice, they were hearing the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter that's his posse, right? They were amazed. They're Jewish believers, and they say, whoa, hold it, stop. We've seen this before. And it was Acts 2, and it was very nationally focused. Now we're getting internationally focused. This is different. It says here, because the, here it is, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. I don't know about you, but that's sweet. Do they use repentance here? They do not. Now turn back real quick with me to chapter 11 and go back to verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down. They glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Let me give you some things about, um, I don't have any space, so I'm just going to give it to you. This word, this preposition, ice, that they have that they have chosen, or sorry, ace, that they have chosen to translate as leads to, because the interpreters are trying to help us out best they can. This word can mean for, it can mean to, it can mean into, it can mean in, or it can also mean with a view to, as well as 42 other possible meanings. So you have to make a contextual decision. You say, well, wait a second, if they added leads to, why did they do that? Let me tell you why. Because even the translators recognized that faith was the difference maker, not repentance. Does everybody see that? Notice that the idea of repentance taking place as pertains to Cornelius' particular situation occurs in chapters 10, verses 1 and 2. But what actually put them over the line where the Holy Spirit came to indwell them? Was it repentance or was it faith? Faith was the difference. It was hearing the word of God and believing what was said. Now, let's turn to Acts 20. Let's see another interesting example here. Acts chapter 20. And we are going to look at verse 18. Because this is interesting. Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders face to face for the last time. He's going to be getting on a ship. He's going to be leaving. They're not going to see him anymore. And, and Ephesus was incredibly important to Paul because he spent three years of his life there, longer than he ever did in any other church 
that we know of during his missionary journeys. But he says some interesting things when addressing them. Look at chapter 20, verse 18. A little bit I've got on here. It's not on the screen, but just follow me. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Now stop. Is he bragging? No, he's not bragging. He's just recounting the facts of the situation. Look what it says. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. That'll preach right there, both publicly and house to house. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of, notice this, one, repentance toward God. Number two, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a question. Was Cornelius repentant toward God? Yes, had he had faith in Christ yet? No, he needed Peter. And this is the reason why he was sensitive to respond to a revelation with an angel telling him, go and send for Peter from Joppa. He will come to you and he will tell you this good news. Does everybody see that repentance and faith are two separate things? Yes? Even Paul goes to the extreme in order to separate them. Now you say, okay, what is the big deal about this? Well, what does repentance and faith look like in relation to eternal life and forgiveness of sins? And how should we understand the difficulty with this preposition that we deal with, which is ace, or, which normally means in, for, with a view to, that type of thing, or the Greek preposition chi, which is and, okay? So chi means and, ace means all those other ones that I gave you. Are, we, are you with me so far? Trying not to get too confusing. Here we go. Let me give you an example, and we're going to take the time to turn there. Go to Luke 24, because this is one that has messed with people for a long, long time. Luke 24. The relationship between repentance and faith regarding forgiveness of sins and eternal life, how we should understand it, and if repentance is a change of mind is something that is separate from faith. Yes, I care that much. Now notice, this is Jesus speaking, speaking to the eleven. Verse 46, he says, And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Everybody see the word for? If you have your New American Standard Bible and it's got marginal notes, you'll notice that there's a marker next to the word for. And if you head over into the margin there, you'll notice that it says, later manuscripts read, and forgiveness. So depending on what the manuscript is, depends on how they've chosen to translate the word. Now let me give you an example from most of the literal translations that people popularly use. If you're dealing with the New American Standard, English Standard, Holman Christian Standard, or the Christian Standard Bible, they would use for, but they always have a marginal note regarding the use of and in there. Now you may use this and you may love this, the NIV, okay? I'm not a big fan of it. The NIV 1984 edition is great. They did a really good job there. Why they felt the need to change it, I don't understand. But the NIV lists four and gives you no marginal note that it could possibly be anything else at all in the preposition that is used. However, when you get down here into the King James, New King James tradition, some of these other literal Bibles, the Darby, 
the NIV 1984, the Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, the Modern English Version. If you haven't checked out the Modern English Version, it's a good standard. It's a good Bible. Young's, the old Wycliffe. Man, the Wycliffe Bible. Try to read that sometime. That's fun. And also in Linsky's commentary, which he was a Greek grammarian, they use and. They don't even bother with for. Because the manuscripts they came from, and they understand that repentance and forgiveness of sins are two different things. Only faith in Christ brings the forgiveness of sin. It's not the changing of one's mind. Notice, however, in this next one here, the Net Bible. The Net Bible is a word-for-word thing that goes on, and here's what's odd about this. They have it all lined out where they do the English across here, and then they'll have the Greek, and then they'll have the numbers so you can look them up in concordances and all kinds of things. It's a headache just to look at it. But what I found interesting was they use the word for, but in the Greek listed right underneath it, they use chi that is predominantly and in the Scriptures, not for. Yet they chose to translate it for. I have a problem with that. Also, because all of you have a Byzantine Greek translation on your shelf right next to your kitchen, right? That's what it is. And with a footnote of the manuscript variations dealing with both of these problems. What am I trying to show you? This is an issue that people have had for a long time, but think about what this does. If we're going to say, well, it's a change of mind and that brings forgiveness of sins and that's the equivalent of faith, if you want to go that route, so be it. More power to you. I disagree with it. I don't think the Scriptures use it that way. But the problem is, is that if we distort the word repentance to meaning a turning from sins that will merit the forgiveness of sins, we've just loaded down the gospel of God's free grace with all kinds of works that someone must perform or present or give evidence of or they can't be saved. Are you comfortable with that? I'm not. And so that creates a problem. How about this one? Everybody remember this one. You don't have to turn there. But remember this example. Acts 2.38, yes? Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for, ace, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I brought this quote up. I want to bring it back so that you can see it. The critical word for the phrase is for, right? Ace, which may also be translated with a view to, and that's a really good way to understand it when we're dealing with this. A comparison of Peter's message in 10, 34 through 43, that's when he talks to Cornelius, no mention of repentance is in that chapter, is, makes it clear that remission of sins comes to whoever believes. Believers are baptized in view of God's work of forgiveness, not in order to receive that forgiveness. In other words, because they are forgiven, that's why we move forward in believers' baptism. But to say that we must be baptized or our sins can't be forgiven, we've just ventured over into the works righteousness side. And that's exactly where Satan would want us to be. It corrupts the gospel. Here's another example. We dealt with this a long time ago when we first started this. This is John the Baptist being spoken of. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for ace, the forgiveness of sins. Now remember, the successful thing we have here is we can use Scripture to compare Scripture. Remember in Acts 19, Paul's got something to say about this. John baptized with a baptism of repentance. We just saw that, yes? We with me? Everybody with me? Okay, I'm just talking like a chicken with my head cut off, so everybody stick with me here. Telling the people to do what? Believe in Him. Is that consistent with the rest of the New Testament? So notice the idea of them being baptized with a repentance 
in view of the forgiveness of sins was not because the baptism or the repentance gave them the forgiveness of sins. It was in order to make the path straight so they could receive the Lord when it came. Why? Because when He shows up, you believe in Him. He is the Savior. Not your works of baptism and not you definitely trying to turn from sin if you understand repentance that way. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They got it right, yes? Yes. How about another instance? In fact, turn there with me. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Acts 5 is such an action-packed chapter. I could have swore I saw Chuck Norris in there the other day. I don't know. It was something else. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. This is Peter answering the priests. Boy, standing up to authority through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love it. Everybody get your rebellion on in this one, right? Here he goes, verse 31. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand, remember this, as prince, that's a regal term, and savior, that's a Messiah, to grant repentance. What does the word grant mean there? Give opportunity to to Israel and using Kai, not Ace, forgiveness, of sins. Does everybody see that it's two separate things? Notice that Peter uses it that way. How about this last one that we looked at last week? So King Agrippa did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both of those in Damascus first, and also to Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should, here's what Paul says, they should, number one, repent. Does everybody remember Acts 17, if you were here last week? that God has now commanded that everyone everywhere should repent. Does everybody remember that? He overlooked the time of ignorance. Everybody should repent. Who should repent? Everybody. So notice that they should repent. That's the first thing that needs to go down. Number two, they should turn. We would look at this as faith. Why? Because if you got out literal words, you would notice that this has to do with metanoia, and this has to do with epistrapho. Completely different word. And notice, and perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Notice, repent, change your thinking about this situation, become wise again about the reality of eternity, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then good work should flow out of you in light of the mind change that has taken place. Does that seem pretty pretty simple, everybody? I'm going to give you this next slide, but it doesn't mean that we're done. Everybody hold tight. Here we go. What do we learn about repentant repentance from these Gentile sections and acts and comparing these words, how they're used? Well, number one, repentance leads to life. As with the Gentiles who believed once they heard the good news about Jesus. However, it is not the equivalent to one receiving eternal life. It's not. The scriptures do not prove it that way. In other words, here's what I'm saying. Repentance and faith are not the same thing. They're separate and distinct things. Number two, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are two separate things. Number three here, forgiveness of sins cannot be merited. Therefore, the use of ace should be understood as with a view to or leading to when used with repentance in life. In other words, when you see that preposition of repentance for forgiveness of sins or repentance to life, we need to check that out, and that's why literal word ends up being helpful, and all this free stuff we have on the internet can be helpful so that we're not getting what we understand about the gospel and salvation mixed up as if works had to be in play. Because here's what they say. Well, if they've genuinely repented, they will have genuinely believed, and I will genuinely see the works. Who just became the judge? Me. Trust me, you don't want me judging you. It's going to be a bad judgment. Why? Because I will always look that your stuff stinks way worse than mine. Why? Because all I care about is me. 
That's the reason why it becomes very selfish and self-centered in that. And if you can control the game that way, you lose every time. Let's look at two more things. Common problem passages looking at repentance. Because the last thing I want to do is, well, what about this one? Well, what about this one? Turn to 2 Corinthians 7. Let's glance at it quickly. Anybody know where 2 Corinthians is? See, I set you guys up perfect for that right after 1 Corinthians. I love it. Everybody just falls right in line with it. It's so beautiful. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, 9, and 10. This is a common one that will usually be promoted trying to prove what genuine repentance is. And they harp on that so much. Guys, if we just read it for ourselves, we'll understand. But remember this. If you come to the text believing that repentance means a genuine turning from sin, you're going to corrupt it. It's not what the word means. Notice he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, this is Paul writing to them, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Pause. Is sorrow and repentance the same thing? No, notice that the sorrow led to repentance. When you get crushing news that maybe you hurt somebody and didn't know about it before, and you have a moment to contemplate that through the emotions that you're experiencing, does it cause your mindset to be a little bit different in that situation? I would hope so. That's you repenting. That's you becoming wiser to your senses afterwards, to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now here's where they try to snag you and bag you. You ready? For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. Ha! See? In order for you to have salvation, you must have a genuine and sorrowful repentance. Now stop for a second. This is 2 Corinthians, which means that it's the follow-up to 1 Corinthians. And we know the folks in 1 Corinthians really good, don't we? They're the spring break church, yes? Did Paul ever doubt their salvation? No. Why would we doubt their salvation here? If you're writing to already saved people, is the salvation that you're talking about go to heaven when you die, or could it be something else? It's usually something else. You're not rehashing the fact that they need to be changed from death to life. That's not the issue that we deal with here. Notice, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces produces death. Here's the problem, guys. You just had a worldly repentance, a worldly sorrow, and no one can be saved through that. This is what you'll read in the commentaries. That's not what the text says. The text says that, yes, were they grieved over a situation? Absolutely. Did it cause a change of mind in them? Absolutely it did. Everything with that totally gels. Are there things about their current present tense or future tense salvation that are now enhanced because of their changing of their mind? Well, absolutely. If they become more in the will of God and are thinking according to His ways, how can you go wrong in that? You can't. But notice, if you make it say, well, it's a turning from sin, you've got problems. Here's another one. This is the last one we'll deal with. 2 Peter 3. Now, I don't know if you'll understand this one, but does anybody know where 2 Peter falls? I'm just making sure you're paying attention. Okay, it's good. 2 Peter 3, this is a favorite of people. And this is the one that for the longest time I was on the fence about of whether or not this could be using repentance as a synonym of faith. And I've come to the conclusion I don't believe that it is. Just from everything else that we see in the Scriptures, the way repentance is used, 
is the idea of people need to repent and they need to believe in the gospel. And I believe it comes in that order. Our thinking has got to get straight first. And then we now become malleable ground to receive the work of the Holy Spirit, what He's trying to do. That's why we go and we share the gospel with the lost. I pray that you're sharing the gospel with the lost around you. Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. Stop. Does anybody know what the context of this is? What's Peter talking about? He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about when the Lord pours out His wrath on the unbelieving world. So you might think, good grief, Lord, why are you so slow? He's not slow according to your timetable. Time has no bearing on Him like it does for us, and we're such impatient people that we try to hurry it along. Don't do that. Don't do that. Why? He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. God does not desire the death of any person, but for all to come to repentance. All meaning who? We know? The entire world. Just as Paul talked about in Acts 17.31 as well. He now commands all people everywhere, repent. Why? Because if you repent, if you change your mind about how you're thinking about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the fact that you might need a Savior, you have now become follow ground to receive Him by faith and faith alone. So, notice this interesting chart. How is repent and repentance used in the New Testament? Well, seven times in Matthew, a lot of it dealing with the kingdom. Three times in Mark, 23 times in Luke and Acts combined, of which a large majority of those, if not all of them, we've gone through. But notice this, John's letter. You familiar with the Gospel of John? His Gospel and his epistles. He actually says at the end of it, the reason why I'm writing this about these signs is so that you would believe, and by believing in his name, you'd have eternal life. The whole reason why he wrote those beginning chapters and chronicled those seven signs was so that lost people would read that section and become believers in Christ. It's evangelistic in the first 12 chapters. That's why he did it. Did he feel the need to bring up repentance? Ding! No! Not one time. What does he stress? 98 times in that book. Believe, 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 believe. 98 times. Now, does John know the word repent and repentance? Yes, he does. And all ten instances of it, and when it occurs, is in Revelation. Especially when you deal with Revelation 2 and 3, he brings it up seven times once to each church that Jesus is writing to. They need to repent. Read it sometime on your own. Those are things that we didn't go over. How about this? Paul's letters. Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Used by God to do that. He only brings it up five times. Romans, his defense of the gospel, he brings it up once, and it's not even in the justification section. It's before that. That should tell you something. How about Galatians? Anybody read Galatians lately? That's his defense of the gospel. Right? I had to call out Peter because he's eating barbecue, but when other people came around, he is abstaining. I'm so holy. I don't need to do that. I'm keeping the law. No, that's not in keeping with the gospel. He actually brings a defense of the gospel. How many times do you use it in Galatians? Zero. Paul saw no need by the movement of the Holy Spirit to use the word repentance in a defense of the gospel, that entire book. Didn't need it. James, zero. Peter, one. We just read it, and it's got the end times in mind, and it's for every person. Jude, zero. Didn't need it. What are some things we come up with from this entire study since we're wrapping it up? You know what? I'm going to sit down. I'm tired. Here we go. 
Understanding repentance as a change of mind creates the least amount of friction in the New Testament. Jesus refers to it as coming to one's senses. Turning has its own word in Scripture and is used separately from repentance. Repentance is a requirement for the nation of Israel to receive her Messiah and His kingdom. Every time, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How about this last one here? Fruits or deeds in keeping with repentance is not repentance, but a result that repentance has taken place. That was a big study, so I got a lot of them. Here we go. In the Old Testament, it is mainly God who repents or states that He will not repent of something. In the Bible, only nine times in the Old Testament are we told that people repent. I think the other count was 32 times, it's God. In relation to the word of, I repent. I repent that I made man on the earth. Everybody remember that one? When they got so fallen with the Nephilim, and that's what causes him to bring in the flood. Or when Moses is asking him, please let me go into the promised land. Do not bother me about this again. I will not repent of what I've decided. He refuses to change his mind. Notice it's not, I refuse to be sorrowful for sin over your situation. And notice it's not turning from sin. Does God need to turn from sin? No. So, I mean, you see what I'm saying? We get kind of insane with this when we let it go. Unbelievers can repent, and believers can repent. We see it on both sides of the aisle. Sorrow and other emotional connotations are not repentance, but rather are emotions that may accompany repentance. Finally, when referring to eternal life and the forgiveness of sins, repentance can occur before one believes in Jesus. And even after one believes in Jesus, but it is never equivalent to faith in the Scriptures. Repentance and faith are not two sides of the same coin. Why is that? Because people are saved in one way and one way only. By faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, period. That's it. And if we distort the definition of repentance, we corrupt the gospel every time. Does everyone need to repent? Absolutely they do. Do Christians need to repent? Absolutely we do. And as the Holy Spirit brings those things to our mind, we need to be sensitive in order to be willing to change our thinking to conform to the Scriptures every time. But if we start giving somebody a laundry list of things to do so that Jesus will accept them, or the laundry list of expectations of repentance after they have believed in Christ, we are corrupting the freeness of the gospel and they are looking at something other than Christ alone for eternal life and forgiveness of sins. We've just put our hands on God's perfect plan. Don't make that mistake. Now you might say, well, wait a second. The commentaries I have at home say that repentance is a turning from sin. Take them to half-price books. It's time to spring clean in the fall. Whatever. Get rid of it. You say, well, I've never heard this before. That's why I'm asking you to do the study for yourself. Sit down with your Bible. Sit down with literal word. Use all these free and amazing programs they have on the Internet. Use the Internet for something good for a change. And get you out one of those big, awesome, honking, yellow legal pads and go to town. You can do this with anything in the Bible. You can do it. You can do it. And hopefully these bookmarks here are a help to do it. But this isn't anything that is beyond, I'm just a regular person at the church. No, you are a child of God and dwelled by the Holy Spirit, saved by His grace and completely forgiven of all sin, guaranteed eternal life for forever. That's who you are. Deal with this book that way. He wants you to know Him. He wants you to know Him. And He wants us to think clearly about Him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You, God, that You give us the ability to think, to reason, to chronicle things, to organize things, to be students, to just dive in and check out how much You love us. 
God, even in dealing with a, a, a mishandled word like repentance over this, God, I just pray that it's water to our soul. And understanding we cannot corrupt the gospel, that you've got words in place for a reason and for a meaning. God, give us wisdom to see. May the Holy Spirit lead us into all truth. May we continue to grow and be conformed in the likeness of Christ. And may we be surrendered and submissive to wherever you would desire to take us in that journey. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.